Hi, and welcome to On Course, the podcast from Echoing Green. I'm Eric Dawson. I'm joined today by Bessie Schwartz. Uh, she is a co-founder and CEO of Cloud to Street, an organization that uses massive data sets to help predict which communities around the world are particularly vulnerable to flooding, allowing governments and citizens to take measures to protect themselves before disaster strikes. Bessie, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. So take us back to your moment of obligation when the idea for this first came forth, when you first decided to tackle this particular issue in this particular way. When did it click? Well, I think there's really two clicking points, as there often are for people who are following a kind of a north star. I'd say um, the, the really the first point behind this is um, the first time I was a community organizer. Um, after graduating college, I had no idea what organizing really was, but I was all in. And I was sent to coastal Florida um, and started working with young people there who um, were facing potentially having to leave where their family had been for generations because of climate change, something they, they hadn't created. And um, working with them uh, in colleges across the, the country and realizing they felt so hopeful but so powerless, and then bringing them together to talk to their senator in an impromptu um, a press conference um, where the senator wouldn't come out. And then when we had this press conference with their staffers, they realized how many of their us there were and how powerful it was. Uh, the senator came out and met with us. And it was that first moment that I realized um, or saw really for the, for the first time in such a powerful way the true tangible value and ground you can gain when bringing people together. But after doing that for for a number of years, I realized even if I could work in so many communities and have a deep impact, it was not going to scale to the level of, you know, say, global climate change. And the other clicking moment, which was really very much around Cloud to Street, was um, sitting in an auditorium at, at Yale with my, my co-founder today, um, and Google came to present a new version, very early version, of a satellite analysis platform, the one we use today. Lots of numbers and pixels, all very exciting from the geospatial analytics side. Beth turned to me and said, I think we can use this to get information to the communities I was working with in El Salvador. And I said, that sounds like an organizing tool. I think we can use all these pixels and all this data set to bring a voice to those people you had been working with. And that's on a massive scale. And so maybe if we can marry these two types of things together, um, we can have something that can have the depth of the impact that I saw in communities when I worked closely with them, uh, but at the scale of <laughs> global analytics that are available today. So why community organizing for you? You know, mm. I think about this moment after graduation mm. where folks are like, I'm going here, I'm going there. You knew you wanted to do community organizing. Why? How? So I, I, I knew I wanted to do it. I didn't know exactly why I wanted to do it when, when I, I started doing it. Um, but it's been so clear afterwards what that gut pull was about. Um, the real reason I did it is that um, I'd been a senior in, in college and was looking at a bunch of things. I actually thought I was going to continue being uh, a scientist and go to graduate school and continue doing some of the field work I was, was doing. Um, and I went to this interview um, to do this thing called community organizing around the environment, and I had no idea really what they were talking about. I hadn't heard of this as a profession. I frankly didn't really even know a lot about organizing. I didn't 
really understand the civil rights movement and the strategies behind it or Cesar Chavez. And I never really thought of that as a profession. Um, but I remember seeing people who were, um, you know, extremely old, 35 years old, 45 years old, to me were like way deep in their careers. And they were talking with the same level of idealism and belief that we could change the world as the 22-year-olds around me. And I just remember thinking, whatever these guys are doing, that they can have meaningful careers, the things that really tend to grind people down and have the same level of optimism and hope and dedication they can change the world. Like, we need that to stay. I'll just do whatever those guys are doing. But immediately when I started working with communities on the ground, showing people that the system that's disadvantaging them, if we work together, that they can create more power and uh, fight back in that system um, and bring people together in those collectives, that's what gives me the most hope that we can uh, topple a lot of the systemic injustice that I see around me. So, um, and I'm curious, take me back even further. Were you oh. an organizer as, as a child? Like, were, were there seeds of this? Like, if we met eight-year-old uh, Bessie, what were you doing? What were you like? <laughs> I remember being very young, being in school, like, for the first time, which was what, kindergarten or, or something, and knowing that I couldn't answer a lot of the same questions a lot of kids around me could. I had this best friend um, Jonathan, who uh, we were, he was my only friend, best friend till fourth grade, super smart. And apparently he would answer questions for me when I didn't know. I, my mom only told me that later. So I remember thinking, okay, there's something that these teachers are preferencing about the way these other people think around me. And I'm not that good at like whatever, just the, it took me a little bit longer to read, normal things. But I totally get all the dynamics that are happening around me. And I get how and I can see the power dynamics between the teachers and the kids and how the, the teachers are preferencing all the kids and realizing how you could sort of um, influence things that way and also notice that other people weren't think Jonathan was like not thinking about that kind of stuff and knowing I think I had an inherent sense that that could turn into something like you can create something from that and it just wasn't what was um sort of optimized for in a, a traditional academic setting. You, you discovered a superpower at a young age you were aware of, of the ability to see human systems and and then to act on it. Yeah. And, and so um, help me marry these two ideas. So I think about organizing as a very uh, human-centered, mm. boots on the ground, mm -hmm. connecting with people, and then satellites, data, big data, <laughs> Uh, which is almost taking the humans out of the equation to look at larger patterns. How do those things, two things fit together and, and how do they show up in, in Cloud to Street? So there's really two things here. There's both the, the core of Cloud to Street and what it's trying to be in the world. And there's the creating a really outlandish idea. All startups really are, but I think ours in particular, and how that requires a different kind of strategy, I think, that I really pull from organizing um, when doing. So at the basic level, um, Cloud to Street is really about bringing voice to people who are um, marginalized and are going to get left behind when we hit the worst of climate change, which certainly we already are. And to me, working on disasters um, is such a powerful way to just see who we care about and who we don't. Who, when a hurricane is coming, are we protecting? Who, when we know the land is going to be become desert and there's going to be famine, are we 
helping? Are we protecting? And um, we just know from the data there's communities all over this country that are far more vulnerable, that are underprotected when it comes to floods, and we're just not doing anything about it. And I think just starting with who we have information about, whose risk we know about, is really just such a black and white way of saying who we care about and who we don't. Um, the, the quick story behind um, Beth is my amazing co-founder, chief science officer, um, Beth Tellman. Um, <clears throat> she went to do her Fulbright in El Salvador um, on coffee or something like that. Within two or three weeks, a massive hurricane hit. And so she just started filling her pickup truck and driving food relief to, to people. She figured, I'll just do this for a little bit, and then the UN or some aid agency will come and, and they'll pick it up. She realized after a couple of weeks that no one's coming to these communities. I think it was three communities she was working with. And so she um, made up the name of an NGO and snuck into a UN conference. Um, it was a planning meeting about where to distribute relief as recovery started. And she said, hey, I just want to let you guys know there are these three communities nobody's helping with. Add them to your list, figuring that would be done. And they basically said some version of the numbers don't show these. this is a vulnerable community. Um, and it was a heavy gang violent um, area, uh, we're not going to add them to the list. So she dropped the coffee thesis or whatever that was and started an NGO to provide food relief there, but realized these are three communities in, in El Salvador. And this is a systemic problem of a, a broken disaster aid list and people getting left off. I need to do this at a bigger scale. So that's when she came to grad school and, and we met doing that. And just the... Um, power of us being able to reveal now in countries all over the world who is being left off the list and then going a many steps further and working closely with the government say, okay, what do we do about this now? And what are the, not just the technological problems, so lack of data, lack of local ownership of data that we can keep up to date, uh, that can be locally owned and understood but a organizational capacity, communication about what happens when a disaster hits, who, who reacts, who does something around decision making, uh, where do we do zoning now that we know where it is, and really working through all of the levels of that problem really came down to, in many ways to the tendency as an organizer to go into an area and really listen and say, okay, what are the actual problems and barriers we have to solving ultimately this problem that we want of getting the right people on the list ahead of time and getting, and getting them protected? That's Bessie Schwartz, co-founder and the CEO of Cloud to Street. I'm Eric Dawson, the host of On Course, the podcast from Echoing Green. And we'll be back with more after a break. On Course is produced by Echoing Green. For more than 30 years, Echoing Green has been on the front lines of solving the world's biggest problems. We find emerging leaders with the best ideas for social innovation as early as possible and set them on a path to lifelong impact. Our community of almost 1,000 social innovators includes past fellows like First Lady Michelle Obama, major public figures like Van Jones, and the founders of organizations like Teach for America and One Acre Fund. Built and refined over 30 years, our process discovers tomorrow's leaders today. Join us as we support a new generation of social impact leaders. Learn more at echoinggreen.org. Welcome back. I'm Eric Dawson, and you're listening to On Course, the podcast from Echoing Green. I'm speaking to Bessie Schwartz, a co-founder and the CEO of Cloud to Street. 
so much of the power of organizing is stories. Mm. And data is a form of, of stories. And as you think about climate change, what stories are being told? What mm. stories are not being told? And, and how is Cloud Street and your leadership shifting that? Mm. I think that there's a couple of things. The broader narrative that we would really like to tell, which really consists of a thousand more local stories, is that um, this is possible, that we can build a safety net around climate change. The the, the worst is coming. I mean, it's going to get a lot worse if we don't do something significant in the next 10 years. But there's already massive extreme weather. There's already crazy desertification. People are going to be upended already. And the story that I'd like to to change about that is that we can help deal with the worst of this, that even today, as you look at flooding, which we've been dealing with for as long as humans have been around, if we can just handle it better, what the problem that we know today and do it on a larger scale, we can curb some of the worst human losses that we're going to see from the increased um, hazards. And then I think the way that we can help tell that story is really through moments of, of hope. So I got a text um, while I was on vacation um, basically the day after Christmas, saying 17,000 refugees just moved in from the DRC to the Republic of Congo. We think they may be in a high flood risk area. It's heavily raining. What should we do? And so we quickly used um, a whole bunch of public and private satellites um, first to just analyze the 30-year history of all of those regions within um, a couple of hours. And then we compared that to some really wonderful traditional flood models by some partners of ours who helped out. And we could tell very, very quickly, 7,000 of these people are in a high flood risk area. 7,000 of these refugees, they should be relocated. Um, And then we could, in fact, say through some of our our great partners at, at Planet, the satellite company, with high-resolution data that it was already starting to flood there. Um, and the gov- that enabled the government to, to have the information that they needed for the first time to move these refugees to, to higher ground. And they're, they're still safe today. I mean, there's lots of flooding happening there. And it's just a little moment. It's just 7,000 people that were at serious risk who we are now able to protect just by sort of putting two and two together at this right moment. And what if we can multiply their stories times all the people who are being displaced, times um, all of the farmers for whom their crops are now starting to flood every year in, year out, can we relocate that to a different place? So I think there's lots of, of potential there. And what did it feel like to get that text, mm. to grab the data, to build the coalition, to solve an immediate problem that arguably saved lives? Um, felt great. <laughs> I have to say, for, for every um, example where we gave the data and then there was action immediately, there's a lot of just training the Ethiopian government around um, how to use more data available today to make smarter decisions. And what does that mean for their long-term planning around their agricultural lands um, and their evacuation plans? Um, and so working on systemic problems, I think, can be, A, um, emotionally hard if really what you want to see at the end of the day is the impact that you sort of dreamed of when you be- began what you're doing. And I think you can also, people get removed from the real problem that they're facing. And I should really credit um, Beth and the rest of our team for just always staying focused at the person whose life we've helped. 
We are building the largest data set of global flood maps. We're analyzing and monitoring floods all over the world at, at um, speeds never available before. But name the person. And I think really forcing ourselves to stay connected to that um, has made all the difference and influenced our technology in ways we would have never thought. So when we have those moments where we can say, at least in this case, we can draw a fairly direct connection, feels um, like everything to us. So there, there are folks listening who... Um like me, are going to be uh, amazed by so much of what you're saying, right? Your, your journey as an organizer, um, mm-hmm. bringing these big ideas together, saving lives. And you and I sitting here also know that there's a whole lot of stuff beneath that mm. that is messy and complicated mm-hmm. um, and, and heartbreaking. Mm. Um, so I'd love to talk just a, a moment about heartbreak. Yeah. Um, and what have what has been some of the heartbreaking moments for you in doing this work? Mm. Oh man, I mean, so many. I think heart, I, it's a it's a very poignant word. Um, I mean, the one that comes to mind feels a little bit um, unfair. So um, my co-founder Beth, who who I is like very much half the heart and soul, the like brains behind this thing. I give so much credit to, but it's a very intense process to do this with someone. Um, especially when um, people are so committed to the vision of, of what they're doing. Um, and like anybody in an in, it's like any intense relationship, there's a lot of heartbreak around the um, expectations and letting someone build something with you that means so much to them, to you together, but also needs to be what it needs to be for them and letting them have what they need out of it. Um, is a very intense process, but there's a version of that that I experience probably with with um, my every person on my team and everybody who who comes to to Cloud to Street. Um, they're coming to it because they are heroes in their own way, and it's a different story for them. And they're doing this and they're building Cloud to Street for their own reasons, and um, letting them have the, letting Cloud to Street become that reason for them um, is going to make us and our cause much healthier. Um, but it does require a little bit of giving up of yourself and the thing that you really be- began. And I mean, it's both heartbreaking, and but if, if it's the only way to do it, and if it works out, it's the most heart-fulfilling thing. Sounds incredibly intimate. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it is interesting because we tend not to think about platonic relationships mm-hmm. uh, as intimate relationships. Mm-hmm. But you are... Um, with your co-founder, with Beth, spending more time together than you probably spend with anyone else, Mm -hmm. Um, at least kind of heart space and head space. Um, You're you're raising something together. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's probably true for a number of the relationships with the startup. And so I'm curious, and and Bessie, this on multiple levels, how do you protect yourself in that process? Mm. Um, How do you take care of yourself? How do you um, how do you maintain a sense of equanimity, or, or do you? Um, it's hard, I, I think. Um, coming back in many ways to the to your own why is really helpful. Um, I think um, you know exercising, rock climbing is very mm-hmm. important for me. I found myself meditating quite a taking on meditation a year and a half ago. Um, perhaps as a way to sort of really help force calmness and perspective um, into your life. I think for me, the ability, it honestly goes hand in hand actually with being creating that kind of workspace, um, is be, knowing that I can have this level of intimacy, I suppose, and 
be having letting people bring their whole selves to it, even though it requires a level of vulnerability and um, intensity to it. That to me is um, much more fulfilling and sustaining than trying to just create much more rigid boundaries. A lot of startup leaders who work with teams the way you do, uh, from my experience, struggle with, I need to be a boss in a very particular way, mm. which is about mm-hmm. leaving my quote-unquote personal mm. stuff outside, which, of course, you know is impossible, is about um, setting boundaries, setting expectations, and then vulnerability and being open. Um, you know, some of that, that those ideas are gendered uh, mm-hmm. as well, which makes it even more complicated. And so how do you think about that balance between... Um, let's describe it as as formality, mm-hmm. uh, structures, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, work plans, et cetera, mm-hmm. and the the humanness of vulnerability, connection, um, and mm-hmm. openness as as a, as a manager, mm-hmm. uh, not just as a leader, but as someone who's actually running teams. Mm-hmm. How do you balance that or think about it? Yeah, uh, I think a certain amount of structure is absolutely re- required, and a certain amount of um, absolute, for me, absolute rigidness around some things. Um, We're very clear about setting goals. And I think that level of accountability is just required for people to know this is a place where we respect the work that we're doing. You need to put that in and you need to follow through the promises that you've made and others are going to respect that you've done that by doing that themselves. And we are all counting on each other to fulfill these commitments that we have made to each other. And I'm just extremely insistent on that. And then I do think for us, at the end of the day, um, I'm the one who makes a lot of the bottom line decisions. And sometimes people don't agree with me. Um, they know that they've been heard, or at least when I'm you know, at my best, they know that they've been heard. I'm making the final decision. It, it works for us. Um, a lot of times the staff want to know that um, you're, you're going to make the tough, you're going to sort of um, buck up, like lady up, you're, and you're at the end of the day, you are going to put on your big girl pants, and they know you have their best interest at heart. Um, otherwise, they, we should not be working together, um, and that you'll, you'll make that call. So the insight there is around the importance of clarity mm-hmm. and, and people knowing who, who's doing what and, and where power lies. Mm. Um, I want to talk about power for a moment okay. um, and how you think about your work as a redistribution of power, mm. uh, particularly in the climate space, which often for folks who sit at the bottom of the pyramid feels so like Davos, lofty, in, in a whole other world. How do you think about power in your work? Yeah. So as an organizer, you think about power all the time. One of the principles of that I was always taught as an organizer is, well, really, Two things. The first is that um, an organizer's job, just summarized in a phrase, is to organize yourself out of a job, to uh, go into a community, help them build up the structures and strategies and realize their own power to the point where you're actually not needed at all, that the community is just doing that. Um, And we think about organizing ourselves out of a job and potentially organizing ourselves um, out of at least this part of our business. and, and a good organizer, too, is um, never seen. It, you, you don't actually know that they were there um, in many ways. And so um, if we're working in um, Ethiopia and then the communities who are now just getting better evacuation or now trusting the um, emergency forecast and the evacuation calls they're getting, and they didn't know that some you know, American startup was behind that, they believe in their government more, that's great. That's great for local ownership. Um, people on the ground community members 
provide equally important data, just purely scientifically, not even from an empowerment, equally important scientific data as the satellites circling the Earth. So we're basically use these boxes, sometimes very large boxes, circling around uh, to try to understand if it's flooding at your feet. You have a much better idea of whether or not it's flooding at your feet. Right, your feet are wet. Your feet are wet, yeah. Um, and if we are very excited about building up something that is co-collaborative and data that is co-produced between the fancy algorithms and the satellites and the community members on the ground who know their area um, very well. Um, and what we'd like to do is present to our clients um, or insurance companies and governments and development banks, oh, no, we can't do our work if we don't engage the community. And the community needs to be constantly engaged in a dynamic way that just improves the data. It's just how it works, um, because that's true. Um, and because I think that does shift people's own sense of their vulnerability um, and their sense of um, uh, connection and need um, by the government and those sort of building the economy in a much larger way. Uh, and and the, Ethiop- the the flood observations we get in Ethiopia improve the algorithm in California. So it's not just a local dependence. It's that we all rely on each other. That's Bessie Schwartz, co-founder and the CEO of Cloud to Street. I'm Eric Dawson, the host of On Course, the podcast from Echoing Green. And we'll be back with more after a break. On Course is presented as part of the Inclusive Leadership Initiative. With support from the City Foundation, Echoing Green launched the Inclusive Leadership Initiative to expand its support of leaders that represent and work with communities of color. Together, Echoing Green and the City Foundation are supporting the next generation of leaders who are helping create economic and social opportunities for young women and men of color across the United States. Welcome back. I'm Eric Dawson, and you're listening to On Course, the podcast from Echoing Green. I'm speaking to Bessie Schwartz, a co-founder and the CEO of Cloud to Street. One of the challenges of of climate change as a concept is it is so big Mm -hmm. and so amorphous and so cataclysmic Mm -hmm. that there can be a sense of, like, where do I even start? Mm -hmm. And what is my role in it? How do you overcome that that fatigue of information, of dire warnings, and, and help, whether it's governments or, mm-hmm. or, or local folks on the ground, or even your own choice about where to put your time and energy to tackle this issue, how do you center that uh, amongst the myriad of choices, messages that you could, you could be engaging with? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so making change in the U.S., strong climate policies and emissions reductions here are everything. I mean, we, 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 there's a couple of other countries we, we're going to ha- also have to bring along with us. But in the U.S., there's so much power that we hold in the fate of the world around this. Um, and getting in law, involved in, um, in the issue politically here. I also, um, I, I spent a lot of time doing political climate change organizing in the U.S. and find that so meaningful and clearly very dedicated to it. The promise of what Cloud to Street does is because we can create the world that we want, even as this we're facing probably the biggest threat humanity has ever faced by making these communities resilient for the threats they have today and the threats that are certainly coming. And then even if it's going to get worse, which it most likely is. And that really tangible focus 
um, makes me really um, hopeful. We know one of the strongest things to make people resilient from a hazard like flooding is social cohesion. It's just the, the science shows that the amount that you know and care about people in your geographic community saves lives. Saves lives around flooding, um, saves lives around heat waves, which kills more people than, than any other disaster. And it's remembering that the person next door is um, disabled and may not have been able to get out. Uh, it's remembering that they have a, a, a lot of kids and maybe they also need help or, um, if they're evacuating or if they're... And so I think, I mean, it sounds sort of silly, but literally remembering your neighbors and their needs in times of emergency is just shown to be one of the most effective ways that we together as a community become more resilient. Um, so definitely be political. I'm not trying to, to shy away from that. But I think that's one of the sort of most tangible things that we can do as these hazards are, are coming. Be a good neighbor. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> so if you could go back in time and, and talk to your 18-year-old self, what advice would you give? I really think that holding faith in what you want. And um, at 18, I really didn't know. Um, I knew I wanted to. I, I, I've actually always known and, and been dedicated to environmental protection. Um but I um, very much didn't know uh, what direction I guess that would take, as nobody does when they're 18. But having a true sense of what felt like it was that fight for me, um, that it was the things that I was concerned about threatened, and then I could do something bigger than myself by helping uh, to protect them. And I think I've questioned that a lot um, along the way. Am, am I helping enough? Am I doing enough? Am I doing something that is sort of has so much outsized impact? And I question myself a lot at every decision that I've made. Um, God, I went back to grad school. What am I learning more for? We know enough about the problems. And who cares about my education, you know? Um, I should just be organizing on the ground. Um, why am I starting a business? Why are we a for-profit? Like, I, th That's not truly for the, the cause. And I really just realized over the last, I don't know, maybe a couple of years um, that I would never have guessed I would be running a startup. That would, that, um, but that it does feel truly, and there have been a lot of way, times I was I was actually quite unhappy in, in graduate school. Um, I'm so glad I, I did it. But I think this feeling of, like, what am I learning more for? I, I um, My career's not going forward. Um, it's felt like a very much a time out um, to just think more about things, which I didn't feel like we needed to do. Um, uh, regardless of whether it was the right thought, it was um, it felt really off course. But having faith, I think now just having faith that I would come back and stay true to that North Star uh, and that I understood on a gut level what it was and what it looked like. And my theory of change has been much more refined over time. Um, but like really just like chill. Like you got like, don't for like, way less anxiety around whether or not I was going to get there or achieve enough around it and do enough. Um, yeah, I just for sure tell her to chill out. If you could go forward in time and talk to your 50-year-old self and could ask her one question, what would you want to ask? It would, it would probably be something around work-life balance. Question, the question, probably the question you asked me before. Uh, how do you like make sure that the heartbreak is productive heartbreak 
and that you're creating the, the things around it um, to make your life, to, to sustain your life in all the ways that you want to. I really have no question that I won't keep fighting that fight um, that I talked about and trying to do as much as I can to reduce the, like, elevate the voices of vulnerable people around climate change and create power for them. Um, but um, making sure to do it in a way that has productive heartbreak and less of the bad kind of heartbreak, I would love some tips. I love it. Productive heartbreak. <laughs> We're going to end with a lightning round. So this is just a sentence or two, mm -hmm. uh, fast and, and furious, whatever comes to mind. Um, when was the last time you were surprised? Yesterday we were, we were um, deciding the sort of next Echoing Green fellows. Um, and it was incredible to hear people's stories. And then I was surprised by my own sense of um, conviction around seeing people's North Stars and how much you really can identify it when someone's saying, "I'm this is what I'm going to solve. I've got some ideas I'm going to tell you about, but really I probably don't know, and I'm going to go for it. And I think just the power of, the, of that when you can see it in someone really I took my breath away a little bit yesterday. What's a small thing you do every day for the planet? Um, I think it would be walk to work, but I wish it was call my congressperson. And what's a book that changed your life? Oof. Um, uh, Into the Wild. Bessie Schwartz, Cloud to Street. One of the uh, golden rules of organizing is to never, ever do for others what they can do for themselves. Mm. And I so admire the way that you build that into everything that you do, from how you manage your team to how you build your vision to how you live your life. Uh, you're an inspiration. Thank you for coming and talking to us. Thank you. It's been great to be here. To find out more about Echoing Green, go to echoinggreen.org. Don't miss any of our episodes. Subscribe where you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a rating so other listeners can find us. I'm Eric Dawson. Stay on course. Thank you.